0: I've talked to several people, like yesterday at church, and a friend on Facebook, and another friend on email, and my girlfriend on the phone, and and it, I have found it's interesting. Everybody has been saying to me how easy the homework was this week, and I was like, I thought it was really hard. <laughs> Is that just me, or what? Am I crazy, or what? I thought it was hard because... W- the deeper you went into these words, the more that you f- you found that there were shades of varying degrees of, of possible um, meanings behind the things that were said. And Craig also brought up a couple of things. He One of the things he said which I noticed right away, which was I had gone in on my own before we were before I looked to see what she wanted us to look up for word studies. And I probably had looked up, I don't know, 15 or 16 different words and did word studies on them. Not one of the words I picked were on her list. Now, how did that happen, right? (laughs) So she and I saw things very differently. And so when it was, in a way, it was a good thing, though, because it shows you where um, the focus of your attention at any given moment, God can take that focus and really draw out a, a personal application for you. So the things that the Spirit draws you to may not be the things that someone else else is drawn to. When we are doing inductive Bible study, uh, the challenge is to stay on task, right? I mean, because sometimes what happens is you get into a word study as well, and it takes you to another cross-reference which all of a sudden then it triggers another thought and then opens up a whole other subject line and there were two or three things that came up for me as i did word studies that i thought oh that would be a good subject we could do that i could teach a whole lesson on that one subject right and i think i hit at least three different things this week none of which were on k's list so we're going to try to stick to k's list since that's what you and i all did together and see what we can come up with her emphasis in the opening of her homework was the idea that there was an exhortation written. And One of the things we did not do was to make a list of exhortations, and I kind of wish we had. If you have five extra minutes next week before you dive into your next homework, since you have two weeks, take one, one extra little sitting of time, if you would, and just go in and list what his exhortations are to him these are statements where he says basically i want you to do this or to behave in this manner because i do think that that it would be insightful to see what since it's a letter of exhortation correct if uh, philippians is a letter written to exhort these believers it would be interesting to see in chapter 1 what are the things he's literally saying i basically i want you to do this or be this um but Kate, let me look, let me pull my sheet here open. Hold on one sec. She opens up often with a little paragraph. This time it's more like just a, a real short sentence. Did you notice S- servants, saints, overseers, deacons. Who are they? So she focuses in on the people groups that are made mention of in this in this record as her focus for our attention for this week. And she says, what are their responsibilities and what are their qualifications? Um, I think that this is done, you know, if, you, if you back up and look at the bigger picture on this, and we wanna do that just by way of reminder, tell me what do you remember at this point about the book of Philippians? Who is the author, who is the recipient? What, and, and more importantly, what is the author's purpose in writing? Tell me what you re, you know at this point. We know the author is Paul, and who is Paul to these people? He's really like a father, even though that isn't stated in there. But we see that he, because of our study last week, what did we learn last week about how Paul met them? How did Paul meet the Thessalonians? At the, at the, the
1: Philippians,
0: at, at the Philippians. Thank you.
1: Right. And and then stayed with
0: her. and his stayed with her for a while and preached there. Right. Okay, so he went to Philippi. Do you remember how he got there? So who what does that tell you about, about who was behind his going there? I, I can tell you one thing about that in my thinking, this is where my little small brain went to was... That is an amazing thought to think that God, through a vision, called him to go there. Where, on the one hand, what was the contrast to that that God called him to go to Philippi? That's right, and that's not a subject we even hit on in the in our homework last week, really, in conversation or in additional work. But the idea of the moving, uh, the movement of the Holy Spirit and of God's how God orchestrates or how God. Um, is directly involved in where we go and what we do if if what if we're listening for it that's exactly right because it's so easy for us to run off on our own and try to be busy about God's work without really engaging in in um listening for the moving or the movement of the holy spirit have you ever had a situation where you felt like God was calling you to go do something, and you just kind of thought, oh, no, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. And then later you thought, oh, my gosh, I, I should have gone and done that. Or the opposite is true. Sometimes you're like, I have no idea why I'm going here, but I just feel like I need to. And then you get there, and you have a significant encounter with someone. This thing is really, It, okay, oh, that's true. Okay, I'm so sorry. Is it bothering anybody besides me? Okay, it's just this noise. I feel, I hear... Okay, if I could hold still and not move, that would probably be okay. <laughs> if I don't move, I just stand just like this. and yeah. <laughs> Anyway, okay, I'm so sorry. Okay, so with with our work last week, just by, you know, to remind ourselves where we've come from and the things that we've already laid down, we saw that Paul, on the one hand, had in himself, wanted to go one place, but the Spirit was forbidding him. On the other hand, then, while he is quietly sound asleep, all of a sudden, in a, in a vision or in a dream, uh, the Lord calls him and says, he sees a vision of a man or a dream of a man, and the man says, please come to Macedonia, we need help, right? So, he wakes from that dream, and it's, the text said, immediately, he got himself up and they left. I just thought that was such a cool part of that storyline. And how so Paul engaged or encountered the Philippines by a divine appointment. That was where I was going with that. I have a uh-huh. Um, he met Lydia at the river, but Lydia
2: took her, to her home and to Lamarca, not in So didn't
0: Is that correct? It wasn't in Philippi? Yeah. But Thessalonica and Philippi are very close together. They're not far apart. They're like sister cities almost. You can, I mean, they're really close. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it's like Dallas and Fort Worth or something like that or, you know, one of those. It's, it's they're all close together. So what, and your point is? Maybe, but um, still not quite sure what your point is. Except that, okay, she's in another city. But we're talking about the people in Philippi. This is the church at Philippi, and she was there with those believers at the time that she received her salvation. And he, she gave him a home to stay in, which was at her home. In, you're saying it was at at Thessalonica, I mean, was but well. that's exactly right. Yes. Oh, Thyatira, there we go.
1: Okay.
0: I think so too. I'm thinking so too. Okay. 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 Here's what. Here's the. Here's the storyline. We did talk about this last, last week, cause I didn't remember about Thessalonica at all. That was you lost me there, and I don't want to argue with you because I because I don't have it open and before me. But here's what I know. What country was she? Where was she actually from? Was she from Greece, from Macedonia? She was from Asia, right? Do you remember that? That's right. She was from the area, exactly, she was from the area where he had come from, where God had said, you can't go up in there and preach. So it was very interesting to me was she had come herself by ship, probably, bringing her purple wares and the things that she's selling to her home in in Philippi. And there she had a business, and she was selling wares. That's where she met him. But she was actually from the area that that... Paul had been said, "No, you can't go into that area to preach." He had wanted to, but the f- Spirit forbid him. That, to me, is what caught my attention in that whole stir- storyline. Uh, Thyatira is Turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, yeah, 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 yeah. Phila- See, I know this because I lived there. So that I know. So, oh, so the- she was from Turkey, from the area, from an area in Turkey, and. Paul had wanted to do some preaching there, but, Paul, but God, by the Spirit, had said no. And then by a dream, he sends him to Macedonia. When he gets there, she's there. She's doing business there. And she has a home there as well. It's kind of like people in, in Austin have, you know, coastal homes, different places around. And, they, and So she had a second home. I think it's in Philippi. Mm-hmm. It
1: said they traveled
0: through and Yes. Whatever the other one is, came and Right. They were just... They, they just were making a, a circuit. That's right. They were in Macedonia. So, Carol, I think you just misunderstood something when you were looking at it. Well, she, me, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I'm sorry that my brain wasn't fully in there, so I, was, I wasn't I was directing you very well. I was I thought that the point you were making was going to not be that significant. You know, it, to, the, to the point that we were, I was trying to make here, which is about how Paul met them, how that church was established there. So her, Lydia, being there, I think the cool thing was the divine appointment. By which Paul met her. I think that part is absolutely cool. And if you are a missionary, if you're a person who has the gift, the spiritual gift of evangelism in particular, this particular story in the book of Acts where Paul is forbidden to go one place, but then he's sent to another. And then when he gets there, the first person he witnesses to is a woman who, who was in the area he was forbidden to to do his work in, the work in that he w- had in mind. We often have our own agendas. We often have our own plans, but God has one. And since he knows the end from the beginning, I just think it's so cool that he made this divine appointment for him to meet her there. Now, then, while he was there, first of all, she gave him a place to stay while he was in Philippi. And um, then the next person he encounters is, it was the slave girl, Correct. What was the end result of that encounter with her? What happens to him and Silas? They ended up in jail. jail. And interesting, was that also um, a problem for him or or did that work to God's advantage? In the end, it worked to God's advantage because what did he do while he was in that jail? That's it. He, he sings. He's praising the Lord. God did some supernatural things there by sh- the, the earthquake and the releasing of the chains and so forth. But in the end, what happens? He wins over this, the jailer to salvation. The jailer and his household are saved. So the slave girl was released from, from her demonic possession. He was thrown in jail. The jailer is now saved. So this picture of Thessalonica or or of um, Philippi, rather. I'm gonna get my cities straight this morning at some point. <laughs> but this uh, this encounter of Paul and how this church was birthed at Philippi, to me, is a is this beautiful story of, of divinely appointed moments, of of God orchestrating his church to move and to be present in the right place at the right time, and these people all coming together. So my question is for you, how do you think that affects your thinking about how you are going about sharing the gospel? When you're sharing the gospel with people, do you ever consider that God has divinely orchestrated you to be where you are in that moment, at that time, to meet those people specifically? Mm-hmm. That's true, that is true. So with and the same is true. Paul, I'm remember with the slave girl, he doesn't present the gospel to her. As a matter of fact, she's actually already saying to him, "I know who you are." Right? She knew herself by the spirit that was within her, which was a demonic spirit she recognized he was the Christ. And she was making these loud proclamations, and it was annoying them, right? <laughs> and so it, it, is, it is an interesting thing when you say you're planting a seed, but even the seed that you plant, it, it's the Lord is behind it all, and his spirit has gone before you, and he has already prepared the way. And if there is, anyone, if there is any person who comes into faith, it's because God has already prepared the heart to receive what you have to say and i think that's a great relief to me
2: the I is that I
0: right I've had that same problem. I I agree with you. You do feel like sometimes, you know, God, am I actually doing the right thing or saying the right thing? I can't wait for us to get to heaven when God allows us to see the fruit bearing that took place because of the conversations we've had. Uh, You know, my spiritual gifting is definitely not evangelism, and so there's a lot of people I... uh, that I do share the Word of God with, I share the truths of God's Word with, but I don't really see a lot of people come into faith through my sharing. And that can be discouraging for a person if you feel like your whole mission is, is about evangelism, right? But people, people, you don't ever know who's going to do what with the information you give them. And with this little slave girl... Apparently, there was a fruit bearing in it, if nothing, even if it wasn't in her life, although, because the scripture's not totally clear about whether or not she became saved or not, but she was delivered of the demon. Um, I'm hoping she was, you know, that's my heart. But the jailer was, because then he ended up in jail, and the jailer and his household are saved in this church in Philippi birth. Okay, so, yes. The slave girl was proclaiming Yes. Yes. Okay, well, g- that's a ho- again. See the the nuances to Scripture. What subject comes up then if you're if you're saying that that a demon is speaking through this girl and is speaking truth about who who Paul was and who Jesus was. truth, Satan is
1: the liar and the father of lies.
0: Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And in a way, it's a lot like what we see with Paul. Paul says whether they're preaching in pretense or in love, either way, Christ is being proclaimed. And in the case of the, the demonically possessed woman, she was she was making a proclamation in uh, through the spirit that was within her, which was at that point a demonic spirit. But the, even the demons know, you know. And you know, specifically de- defining a demon. What is a demon? It's a fallen angel, and they were in the presence of God before they became fallen. They know who he is, and so they were making this process. So that's a whole other subject of study line. There you go. (laughs) That's a very nice. We just brought (laughs) that. That's right. That's exactly right. And that is that not exactly what in Chapter 1, that's exactly what Paul says. Either way, I'm going to rejoice. Yes, I w- will rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. What yes. What
2: was the motivation behind her because she was a famous fortune teller and was making a lot of money for the people that were her masters. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul wanted the people focusing on the message of the gospel, not this fabulous uh, fortune
0: teller. Right. Right, of course, absolutely. All right, so now we've got a little bit of background reviewed in our minds about how Philippi came to be. We see that this is an appointment by the Lord, that God brought the gospel to those who would hear. I love the message in the book of Revelation where he writes all these letters to these various churches, and he says, those who have an ear, let them hear. And that is what the Lord is looking. He's looking for those who have heart and ears to hear him. Okay, so today's homework, then, as as Kay focuses in on bringing uh, t- us to the to the place of looking at each of these different qualities that are going on within the church, these different functions within the church, this to me brings up a another kind of a subject, which is about the birthing of the church, since we know that we are in the early uh, birthing years of our tr- of the what we know as the church, right today. What kind of things do you see going on in the church through what we have been looking at these last couple of weeks? Where are we in the progress of church establishment? We're
2: trying to get some form of we talked
0: Okay, very good. So it looks like even this early, and so you're talking the year 65, 67, 68, somewhere in there, right, A.D.? Um, So we're only talking about maybe 30 years or so after the birthing of the church, correct? Am I close? I'm just ballparking it. Okay, so what we see, though, already there are overseers and there are deacons correct? And when we went back and looked in the book of Acts, for those of us who did that study in Acts, we saw that, very slow progress, but the necessity for there to be some functions and some offices, basically, <laughs> established within the church. Um, and a lot of the things that they did when they established the church, if you I don't know if you recall or not, but when we did our Acts studies, we went back to Moses when he was in the wilderness and how sometimes things became too big for him to handle and he had to break it down. And he also assigned certain people to certain functions, right? And and this organization began to kind of formulate. And then God gave them also a pattern for the temple and how it would work and who would do certain things. So we're kind of seeing that in where we're at right now with Paul. Very early in church history, we are seeing the church is being established and that there are, there are some defined roles that are being est- uh, set up or put in place at this point already, which is pretty cool. They went from meeting along the water in a very casual, almost picnic-style worship system in the early church to now having a church with some function in, and offices put in place. That's kind of neat to see that, just to see this very gradual progress. So does that make you ponder just a little bit about what, go, how God sees all that's going on in this? What, do you, do you, what are the insights that you gain about God and about his church just from knowing this little bit of information? Very good. There needs to be order, correct? There is a design and a function that needs to be in place to help things have order and have some measure of discipline, right? Because can, can we function outside of order and, and defined roles? Not as well. What happens when you have a group of people coming together and you've got too many uh, chiefs and not enough worker bees, right? Too many people are trying to say, let's do this, let's do this, but not enough people are falling in line behind someone and following them, correct? It becomes chaos. So this is one of the things that we're, we're just kind of getting a little brush at, at a look at the fact that this very, very early in the church, God is organizing things for us. He is putting in place some, some structure to help us function better as a body of Christ. Um, there's a teaching that, that Scripture covers, too, called spiritual giftings. And he talks about the spiritual giftings that are given for the, the uh, exhortation and the, in, the edification of the body of Christ. And each one has a function so that the whole works together in, in harmony, right? Okay, qualifications and responsibilities, then, is kind of some, the subject matter that we're looking at. The, the exhortation that Kay camps on for us is conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so as we are looking at these word studies today, our goal is, or our focus is going to be to see what are the qualifications and what are the responsibilities in these in these different offices which are brought up to us so that we can begin to develop a little bit bigger uh, concept of what is it is that God is doing there. It is important to know that we are looking, first and for- foremost, that we are looking at people who are already in salvation, okay? So we're not looking at words from the perspective of becoming saved. We are looking at these things from the perspective of those who are already saved. They're, they're already established in the church, okay? That's going to help you, and I know it probably seems like I'm overly emphasizing a very simple clearly understood point, but if you don't say that up front, sometimes I think some, you, when you get into these conversations, people start um, mixing apples and oranges in their thinking on this, so I want to make sure you understand these are things that God's speaking to his church, his believers, okay? Um, it Really what it is, it's the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's going to say this to us in chapter two later, talking about this upward call. Here's a question to throw out there for you. Do we all aspire to that upward call? We, we're all saved, correct? We, we come in, not everyone's saved. You and I in this room, we all have entered into salvation, right? We're justified. We're in the household of faith. Here's the question though. Have we all aspired to that upward call? Do we all accept the call? To, wor- to really walking and conducting ourselves in a manner worthy, uh, do we embrace it? Would you be among those exhorted by Paul for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now? Would, God, would Paul say of you that you have joined him in exalting Christ's name, in bringing people into salvation? Would you be exhorted of, of basically having done well in this? He, one of the things that Paul says to these people is how he finds delight in his, in his prayers before God for them because of their participation in the gospel from the first day until this point. And so he exhorts them in that. Um, then he goes on, he, sa- he talks later in the chapter about them standing firm. Are you and I standing firm in the things that we know, in the truths that we've been taught? D- and what does it really mean to stand firm in those things? Standing firm meaning what? I mean, there can be possibilities in how you look at that. Standing firm can just be saying, well, this is the gospel truth and I stand in that. But standing firm could also mean standing firm in the behavior of your life, of exhibiting it or demonstrating it in a way, as he says, conducting yourself worthy. Are you striving for the gospel? Have you accepted suffering? We, We looked at suffering this week at the end of the lesson, and she wanted us to see all those cross-referencing through a whole council understanding. Suffering is a part of the package plan. Did you know that? When you entered into salvation, did you did you understand you're signing up for the, the possibility of adverse people coming against you, people struggling against you, simply because of the one that you've identified with, the one that you love? Um, how many of us, and uh, for me, because, you know, well, I'm not the only one, but the, what, for those who are older, I can remember when I was very young, the gospel message was about, come into faith. It's great. Once you get saved, life is going to be so good. Everything's going to be so easy for you. What did you learn this week about that? That is not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, it's almost the opposite because one of the, one of the things that we looked at was the, the fact that Christ suffered persecution and the world hated him. And the very fact that you put on his, his name, when you put on a hat that says, I belong to Jesus, automatically, walking out into the world, what's going to happen? Someone's going to come along and what? Want to knock that hat right off your head, right? They're going to dislike you without even knowing you, simply because you happen to have a scripture verse on your t-shirt or, or you know, bear the name of Christ in any way. That brings opposition from the world. Are you, but are you accepting that suffering, or do you run from it? Do you understand the value of suffering for yourself personally, and do you understand the calling into suffering that is literally a part of our of our relationship with Christ? Are you conducting yourself in a manner worthy? Okay, so let's look at a little closer look at, the, at that I opened up my how-to study book again this week, and I wanted to just draw to your attention. There's a couple of chapters in here, two or three, that might be of value to you at this point to go in and look. Chapter 5 is called It's All Greek to Me. This is in your how-to study book. This one talks about your Greek word studies and the value of them and why they're important for you. Uh, Let me read just a tiny bit. It says, one of the study techniques available to help you fine-tune your understanding of scripture is word study, which is the study of words in the original languages of the Old and New Testaments. The Bible was written originally in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek and some Aramaic in the New. So it's really helpful for us to go back to the original language to to gain greater insight or clarification. And basically there it says word studies are step three of the process of inductive study so you, you have stop one step one setting context s- uh, step two identifying your author's major perfect pur- purpose and you do that through looking for your keywords and finding them and then, then step three you get into your uh, Greek word studies um, why is it necessary to do word studies when we have many good translations of the ancient Bible texts and manuscripts? Well, it's because although translations of the Bible are usually done by teams that operate by consensus to find the best equivalent word, it is often impossible to find an exact match in the meaning from one language to another. Also, sometimes there is a difference between the way we understand an English word and the way the translators understood it. Okay, So in other words, Your own biases and your own way that you think or perceive things can really come into focus when you're picking an English word to represent what was in the old original language. Sometimes it's hard to convey the tense, the voice, and the mood of verbs when you translate them into another language as well. Now, I don't know how many of you in here are really into the Greek uh, and th- this verb ten- verb tenses the moods and, and the, uh, the way that the, the voice of it actually you know, affects the understanding of it. But it's very I- it is very interesting, but I can tell you this, I'm not a Greek scholar. And I probably will never be a Greek scholar. It's not really high on my agenda to want to do that. However, I do love it when Kay will bring us to see some of these points. And so the great thing about having this inductive curriculum that we have, this inductive study curriculum, is that when it becomes really important to understand those, she will point them out to us. And she will help us to see which one it is. And then you can go further with it if you want to and do more digging on your own for those of you who are interested in that. In many instances, therefore, you need to go back to the original language to get the full meaning of a word for the full import of a verb, which can uh, be a valuable tool in understanding the text, especially if it's a difficult to understand text, right? The purpose for doing word study is to understand the meaning of a word or words in the context that you are studying. So that takes us back to saying, okay, but first you have to then have understood what your context is. That's why we, almost every time I open class, go back to try to reestablish, do you remember where we're at, where we've come from? Who was the author? Who was the recipient? What was the historical setting? Where are we in the development of the church at this point? All those things factor in when you dig in and start reading in, the, in Scripture about these uh, statements that he's making. Even his opening statement, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the church at Philippi, who are the, the saints. And So when he opens a letter and he begins to give you uh, these words, these Greek words, all those words are chosen by divine inspiration, right? We know that. God is the one who's inspiring it. By divine inspiration, every word that is chosen and placed in this text is there to uh, convey a message. And it, really the excitement thing, exciting thing is when you look at those word studies, when you do the word studies, they develop a fuller, m- more um, mature understanding of what it is that you're looking at. They take time. They're, they are a little bit demanding, and at the time that you're doing them, sometimes it feels real mechanical. It feels like you're just, okay, looking up that word. You're writing it down. You're listing this. and then, But after you get to the point where you've got it all on the paper before you, then you can step back and you can start saying. You, your eye focuses on certain words that came out through that word study, and you start pondering all that called meditation on the Word of God. You take that back then to the text, lay it into the text, and all of a sudden, something goes ding, ding, ding often. How many times have I said to you, always look up the the definition of the word God or Jesus that's used in the text that you're looking at, right? How how, how many times have I said that already even in just this class? Because what happens is God uses the correct title for himself that conveys the message that he's trying to, to get across to you in the text that you're in. So almost every time, even if you, if, you're, if you drop into a cross-reference, if you have time, look up the word for God that's used there to see which quality, which characteristic, which moral value, which, which technical strength, what attribute of God is it that he's conveying in that title that he is using. It'll surprise you almost every single time it directly relates to the subject matter, the contextual subject matter that you're in. It's exciting when you see that, because that just shows you the divine sovereignty of God over his word and his choice of words, right? All right, so that is the first one, chapter five. I would recommend you go back and read the whole thing. I just touched on it a little bit. Then in, um, let me see if I can find the next one here, chapter six. Let me see what I marked. Oh, this one was, let scripture interpret scripture. Now, this is another thing that we have done this week, and I'm just showing you where it is in your books that you're aware of. It's in chapter 6, and this part here is telling you and expounding on your understanding of why we do these cross-referencing. It's it's attaining the whole whole counsel of God's word and bringing as much insight as you can back to your subject matter. So if you have a subject that comes up... our, for, one of our first subjects was, for instance, the word bondservant. We're going to do that together, right? And then she took us to just one cross reference. Quite honestly, she could have taken us to quite a few other cr- cross references on this, right? But she takes us back to the Old Testament to say, what? how was this conveyed originally by God? And the first use of a word in Scripture is usually its most clearly defined understanding. Now, I'm not saying that where we went in Deuteronomy is its first use, but she's taking you back to earlier uses. We're going back to the Old Testament to say, this is where this word is used first or or earlier in Scripture. This is what God tells us through his word. Its definition is, so you let the Scripture define your word, and then you've got Scripture from the old that now you can bring into the new, and you're letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Isn't that cool? So if you understand the, the purpose for doing the things that we are doing in our homework, I think you will be more enthusiastic about doing it. Um, on day five, Kay gave to us like, how many, a gazillion cross-references? Like, I don't know, 12 or 10 or something, it was a bunch. And what was our subject matter, do you remember? suffering. And so what happened is in in, cha- in chapter one, we see him speaking about his own suffering, right, his imprisonment. And so the subject matter in the immediate text that we're studying is suffering. So we are now going to go look at cross-references on the whole other places in scripture. And we're not hitting them all by any stretch of the imagination, but she pulled out cross-references that we can go look at and we can pull points of fact about why suffering, when suffering, how suffering, and ultimately what is the goal of it? What is it, go- what is it going to accomplish for you? What is its design purpose for you? And by doing all those cross-referencing and allowing additional uh, information from cross-referencing then to be brought back into the, your immediate text that where you're in at the time, you're going to develop a better understanding quite often your author and your recipients that are receiving this letter from him already have a full contextual understanding of that point. You and I, on the other hand, often need to develop it a little bit. Right? I mean, suffering may not be the best choice, but if we're talking about the priesthood, if we're talking about certain offerings, for instance... Um, there are a lot of things that have to do with the Jewish system that you and I would never get. We need to go do those cross-references to develop our understanding, bring that information back in to where, w- where we are in our immediate context, and that will help us a better get a better interpretation of what we're looking at okay So let Scripture interpret Scripture is another chapter you need to look at. So those two chapters they're very short. I would recommend you go and look at those because those relate to what we did this week. Um, and if you need uh, extra help on how to use uh, st- how to do your word studies, there is a section in the appendix of this book. It's, it's Appendix D. Basically, it's, you know, it's in the back of the book. Just go to D, and you'll find a whole section in there that explains a little bit better about word studies, for those of you who need that. Okay. Any questions on the mechanics of our work this week, doing cross-referencing and letting scripture interpret scripture? Now you know why you did it, a little bit better why you did it. Okay? All right. The, that's my lesson for the day on how to do your inductive study processes. Okay, so now let's move on to Lesson three, it's homework. And let's look at these words that help us to develop a better understanding of how it is that we're going to conduct ourselves worthy in a manner of the gospel and how we're going to understand that better just through doing word studies. It's amazing what you can do. All right, the first word we looked at is the word bondservant. Now, that comes up in verse 1. Who is a bondservant? Paul and Timothy. So Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. So for us... If we're not familiar with what that actually means, we need to go back and look at it. Now, actually, we did this thanks to uh, Don bringing, up t- bringing it up as a key word. We actually did a little bit of that last week as well. So we had already defined this word once, so let's just review that very quickly. What is a bondservant in your word study? Was 1401 in your Strongs, correct? And how is it defined by your Greek word study? A servant, uh one who gives themselves up, and it was at um okay, it looks like you've just copied right down the line. at disregard to one's own interests. Any other points that you found when you? I like that. The word servant or slave? Slave was a synonym to it, right? A slave. Okay. now, this is on day one, page 17 of your homework, if you need to find that. Now, we're going to expound that. So now we've done our Greek word study, and we've got a very clinical definition of it. Now we want to go look at it and let Scripture interpret Scripture for us a little bit. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. She took us into Deuteronomy 15, and she, lo- she asked us to go there and see how it was used there and what, how, you def- how you clarify or, or expound your definition on it. So we're in Deuteronomy 15. What did you see there? This was on page 17. Read the following scriptures and see how they can be cross-referenced with Deuteronomy 15. She gave you verses 12 to 18. I actually think you needed to do 1 to 18. Did anybody else notice that when you got in there? That Really, if you backed up, you guys weren't as enthusiastic as I was probably, right? <laughs> because in, when, you go, when you start in verse 12, what is the thing that um, he's doing in there? What, where are we in the, in the conversation of things in Deuteronomy? This is the hardest thing about dropping into cross-references. What's going on in Deuteronomy that, where you're dropping in? What's being What's being stated? Who's stating it? Why are they stating it? What is the point in Deuteronomy? What is going on there? Did anybody kind of look to see what their context was on Deuteronomy? It's about people who
1: have been above over because of debt or something like that. And, and every seven years they're supposed to be
0: released. Okay. Now, who's saying it and why to whom? Who's saying who's who's saying this? This is what you there you go. So God is giving to his people laws, correct? What are these laws for? What is what are they gonna do with these laws? Just like where we're at, we just talked about it. Where are we in the in the development of the church? There you go. Bingo, you get a big ace plus and a nice star in the back row. It creates, or what we see in Deuteronomy going on is order is being established. They are God's people. They have been in captivity in Egypt all these years, living with no orderliness of, of certainly not godly orderliness, right? So God is now at this point in the in the record in Deuteronomy, He's giving them laws. These are how you guys are going to govern yourselves. These are how I expect you to live. These are how I expect you to treat one another. Why? Why did God want them to treat each other in a specific way? There you go. Pictures again. We're back to pictures. God is saying, you are my people, and you are going to be a picture in the world. And what is their job in the world to to be and do as his nation? To be a light in the world. So God is giving them laws and order so that they will be a proper light and a proper picture in the world. Ultimately, God's great deso- uh, desire and goal is to do what? Draw them in to see God, to love God, to know God. They wa- God wants the world to look at Israel and say, Look how blessed those people are who love and follow Yahweh. Right? And if he's that good and if he's that loving and if he's that orderly and that that perfect. Who who wouldn't want that for their God, right? So this is what God wanted. He wanted his people to represent him correctly in the world. Are you starting to get a little bit of a message here at all that relates to what we're seeing in Philippians? Do you see a subliminal message going on for us as well in the writing here about him being a bondservant at this point and the purpose to a bondservant is to be this slave, one who's devoted, who who willingly is submitted and devoted to another at the disregard of his own interests? How does that benefit anyone? Why do you think Paul would want to be a bondservant, a slave? Why would he want that? Well, when we go back to Deuteronomy, we see God saying to his people, the, this is how I want you to treat one another. And the first piece of information we get is, as Craig said, is we, it says, these are your kinsmen. Did anybody look up that word, kinsmen, by chance? Uh, it's really, in, you, the more you guys dig on these things, the more um, rewarding it's going to be for you, I think. It, it's hard to go into these cross-references because you do have to kind of fully set the context. What we like we just did, but the kin—the kinsman is basically, by definition, it's a brother. It's one of the same family or tribe. It's your kinsman or it's your countryman. Okay, so in this case, he says your kinsman is to serve you for six years. Now, do, why, why would you have to serve someone for six years? A debt probably a debt. I mean, there can be some other things and we didn't we didn't go into looking at all that and we don't really need to. But basically they either owed a debt or they had gotten themselves into such um a a situation where they really owed something to this person and the only way they could repay it was to put themselves in servitude to them. Right? Kind of like an indentured servant. There you go. Okay. So, you're like a credit card. Yeah, like a credit card. There you go. Again, he's got it. <laughs> there you go. So how many of us are indentured servants to our credit cards? Yeah? Okay. So your kinsman then, because you're in debt, you owe him money. Now you are going to serve him. And according to God's law, he was telling them in Deuteronomy, he says, as my people, this is how I want you to treat one another concerning these things like debt. You are going to allow your kinsman to come and serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. Did you catch that? Why? Possibly because the debt would be What God may say is, you know, six years is long enough to have to pay anybody for a debt. How many of us have paid debts for longer than six years? And after a while, you start. I know. I can remember having college loans that just keep going on and on, and it, it, we're, we owe more at year six than we did at year one, and we've been paying on it for six. You know. At the end of the year but it so is. The yeah, yeah. In that, so it, it says, in the seventh year, or at the end of the seventh year, you should set him free. Okay. And th- we could go into the nuances of it and all the details, but the point is. He's saying there's a, desi- there's a design amount of time that God says this is how long you shall serve for that for that and in the seventh year then you're to set them free. Why? Now go to verse 15. Mm-hmm. Katie,
2: is it the seventh year or the eighth year
0: that's the year of Jubilee? Okay. Th- another subject. The year of Jubilee is the f- 40, after 49 years on the 50th year is the year of ju- Jubilee and you're set free. That's And yes it correlates to this. But it's that's if you want to do a whole study on that, right? Yeah. We could, this is where the problem with going into all these cross-references can cause an issue. You can really get crazy on, on rabbit trails. Okay. Here's what I want you to see, though. I want you to ask the question, why? Who, what, why, when, where, and how about this subject that he's presented here. And he's saying, you shall serve for six years, and then on the seventh you shall release them. Why? What does he say in verse 15? Yeah, because guess what? At one time you were a slave. All of you were a slave. And what did God do for you? He freed them. He freed them. So what does that tell you then about this particular law? What is this law to, to be? A picture, a remembrance. Something that they do to remind them about something that God did for them. He's taking a literal physical law and he's saying, I want it to have a spiritual message for you. And every time this occurs for you, I want you to remember the spiritual truth behind it. You were once slaves and I set you free. And so I'm going to say to you that when a man owes you a debt, he can serve you for a period of time, but then you are to set him free. Why? Because I did it to you. I set you free. It's a picture. Isn't that cool? That's pretty cool, guys. And he says um, in verse 14, concerning God also, he says what in verse 14? Okay, did you catch the word as? So there's a, there, there gives you the reason behind it, the why behind it. Because God blessed you, you shall now also reach out and be a blessing to him. Why? Because he's your kinsman, and you, Israel, are my picture to the world of how I, how I deal with you. I want you to demonstrate that to the world so that the world will know this is how I am. This is who I am as God. I, I set you free from slavery, so you need to set your indentured servants free. I blessed you, so when you set them free, you are to also bless them. Isn't that an awesome picture? Aren't you already excited you did this word study, this cross referencing? This cross referencing right here is like, wow, I didn't know this. When I got into this, I did not see this until I started asking the question. So the the conclusion is, it's a golden rule. Basically goes down to the, do you guys know what the golden rule is? What's the golden rule? as you'd have others do unto you. And I think about, uh, basically, the conclusion is, as God has done for you, you are to do for others. Isn't that cool? So now what we see by doing our Deuteronomy cross-reference is, um, number one, um, you were a slave, and then God said, you free. And that's in fif- verse 15. And then the second point is um, basically you were poor because they came out of their slavery with nothing and God even allowed, even caused the, the Egyptians to send them out with gifts, right? But then when they got onto the land where they again were in a place of being uh, poor or without, and God began to do what for them? What was part of the covenant promise? That he would bless them. And so he caused the rains to come down. He caused the the flocks of their fields to bear bear and produce children or offspring. And he caused the the crops in the land to bear much fruit. And because he blessed them, then they became wealthy, right, in time. So you were poor, and God blessed you. So there's the principle about the idea of of indentured slavery. Slavery. Now we're gonna now we're gonna take this much information. We're gonna go then to the to the next point, and that is then he says, following that in verse 16. Now, if you have a slave, and Yes, you're going. You're supposed to be willing to do this for them. You're going to set them free. You're going to you're going to send them out with uh, money. So you're going to do for them what I did for you: is free them and bless them. But if they don't want to be freed, because because they want to stay with you, then there's this term bond servant. He says, if you if your slave chooses to stay. Now we could get into all the details about what would cause a bond, a person to want to be a bond servant under that old law and there, there's a lot of study that you need to do on that but it can be anything from just the, the simplicity of what's stated right here to other things like maybe they married another slave person and now they've got a family and underneath that law they don't get to take their slave wife and their, their children who are born to them with them when they leave. They would have to stay long enough to somehow get them free as well, right? And so there's there's a possibility of other reasons behind this. But what the text tells us in here is about a, a definition for the word bond servant. I love it. So we have our Greek word study for bondservant. Now we're going to do what's called a cross-reference or a letting scripture interpret scripture. And we're going to get a definition from this particular cross-reference on what a bondservant is. What did you learn then when you hit verse 16 about a bondservant from the text? One who chooses to stay. Okay all right he chooses to stay so in other words it's free will correct and he does so because he loves his, his master that's one possibility he loves his master this has to this is part of the formula behind who would want to stay who would want to be a bond servant what else did it say be- pardon He he's going to do it for life. All right, let me let me leave one spot there for the Um, there we go. Let's get that on the list first. The the, another reason he wants to say, besides the fact that he loves him, but he has also looked at his life there as, as he has been a slave to this master, and he sees that he that he has fared well with him that his life has gone well that he's treated well that he's he's actually in a better scenario than he feels that he could probably ever be on his own are there people like that in our world some people are providers they they own the businesses they take all the risks they set up they they produce and they they begin to establish themselves well and others come along underneath them and choose to work for them they'd rather work for someone else than to venture out on their own that's just the, that's the way it's always been with human beings. Some are those who want to lead, some who would rather be under a master. He loves his master, and he sees that he fares well with him. Okay. All right, now, once that part is established as far as definition, Is there something that is to be done if this wants to occur? If a person wants to become a bond servant or a bond slave, or yeah, bond servant or bond slave, what is it that then the scripture says they are to do? What is the sign or the ceremony that they are to go through? Okay, so there's a sign and a. C- <laughs> You're laughing. Okay, yes. <laughs> Could you? Yes, yes, come right up here, please. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I can find a hammer somewhere. <laughs> okay, a sign and a ceremony then is given to them in Scripture, something that is to take place so that this person is then um, known to be as a bondservant. Why do you think this ceremony is done? What, what was the ceremony? They take what? An awl, which is basically a big stud, like a wooden stud. right? You know, we see these people with great big ears these days with a great big hole in the middle, some, kind of along those lines. And then they take, it's a pierced ear, but it's a pretty heavy-duty pierced ear. They take the ear, they go to, the, to a, a door post, and they hammer it. Now, there is so much symbolism in this, and we did not look it all up. But can you imagine some of the, can you think it through? What are some of the symbolisms in that? Okay, I thought about Christ, the cross, being crucified, and the marks upon His body uh, as He died for us, and, and and He did so in His in His place as a bond servant to whom? To His Father we're going to look in that when we get into chapter 2 where we see him. He took, he took on also the form of a bondservant to the Father in this regard. In Jesus' case, his awl, the awls that were hammered were not hammered into his ear but into his hands. What is the point to that then? What would be the point to having your ear um, pierced in that way? It's a mark. It's basically, literally, a mark. I didn't even think about the idea of circumcision, where the, it was a mark, it was a sign. I had a very interesting conversation with a Jewish friend of mine this week, and um, she is she is um, Jewish in name, basically, only, but and she doesn't really know anything about her Jewish faith system. But she asked me the question. I thought it was an interesting question. Margaret, do you remember? What did she ask me? She said, why do you, do Christians have circumcision? Also, yeah. are Christians circumcised? Also, and I thought it was uh, maybe. And she seemed to be interested in why we wouldn't, or and but she thought it was all for a different reason. She thought it had to do with cleanliness and so forth. She didn't not understand that it was a sign that the mar- any time there's a mark given like that. It's given as a sign or as a picture or as a remembrance or um, as a clear identifying mark, correct? So in this case, the the mark in the ear then would identify this person as being a bond servant to someone, right? Now did you notice about the doorpost? Why the doorpost? Maybe Kinda, that that kind of could go there, maybe. that was my thought that because it's marking him to that house so he goes to that house's doorpost and he is and he is marked at that place be- and therefore from that point forward he he belongs to that house basically re- which represents that man in his house so it's a sign and a ceremony and it, and he has to have a visible mark um And it's freely received, again, freely received in his flesh. Very cool. That's in verse 17. Now, I did commentary right there. This is my commentary. It's a visible mark. It was freely received, and it's in his flesh. Are you making, are are any bells going off at this point? Kind of ding, ding, dings about the totality of what we looked at this week. Tell me some things that are going through your head at this point about the idea of the bondservant that you. That might be. A, yeah, it kind of makes me think of it's like a it's like another way of covenanting, isn't it? To become a bondservant, it's like. It isn't a covenant, but it's like a covenant in that there's a sign with it. There's there's kind of this ceremony that takes place, and then there's this visible way of identifying you with something else, right? Taking on the identity of something, right? All right. And when you go into the homework at the end of the week, where we're looking at the subject of suffering, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So, interesting. Again, here we see a picture where God takes a a human institution or a human function that we do, something that's in our world, and he gives it a spiritual truth or message through it. He says, "This is a picture for you." This this idea so he gave to Israel a law which they put in place for them to come to an understanding about what a bondservant was and what it meant to be a bondservant and how you became a bondservant. You did not become a bondservant by somebody forcing you to sign on the line. They don't put you in that on your own. Now, you can go into servitude on your own, Right? You can, you can do that. You, I mean, somebody can actually force you into servitude because you owe them. They can literally have you arrested, and then you owe them, and so then you have to go serve them. And you can get yourself into that position because, uh, because of your foolishness or your bad choices, but, and they can force you into that servitude, but they cannot force you into the bond servant place. That is one that you approach by free will. You make a decision, and, it's, and the decisions really are factored on things that, are, that have to do with the heart. You love that man, and you also look at your life with him, and you see that it's, it's fared well for you. And so it's a desirable place to be. I think it's a different, it, it's a slightly different yeah, subject yeah, though. I know, yeah. There you go. That's it. That's Yeah, but I think that's on the subject matter of, be, of being urged on by the spirit that now dwells within him. Because he has the spirit of God in him, he has a strong urging to want to go in that direction, to do that which God has designed him and equipped him to do and empowered him to do. So, But in this case, what we really want to see clearly is the bondservant is there by free will choice. I think it's a beautiful picture. Yes, they could be. Yes, so when you go back, that's what I was saying. We did not fully develop this. As you can see in her opening on this, she barely took us through it. She said, go look at this, and then she just kind of left it there. But if you did your – I would say the, the best way to cover this be- really better is uh, the Deuteronomy 15. Go all the way to from verse 1 through verse – was it 16 or 17, right? And you'll get a little bit better. And then as you're going through it, ask those questions – how do you become a bond servant? Well, it starts because you're a slave. What is the principle about slavery in scripture concerning human beings? You are either a slave to who? Either to man or, or Satan or, or to God. You're really in one place or the other. Regardless, you are a slave. So here we're seeing a picture of what is a slave and how does he get there. Well, you can get there through your own stupid choices or, or because you made bad choices or because life just treated you badly in, in some regard or another and you ended up there, right? But in any event, the, the point that you're a slave shows a position where you start, but how do you become a bondservant? By By choice. And it's, and it's a decision made out of your love for that one that you are going to now serve. And then, I didn't write it on here, but the point is that once you become a bondservant, how long does that last? For a lifetime. A bondservant. And it says forever. All right? That's really cool. Once you receive the mark, can you undo the mark? You can cut the ear off maybe to hide it, but you can never get rid of the mark. If you, if you retain the ear, you're going to have the mark. I think there's another little neat story in that one. Okay, so wow, just that much alone. What a beautiful picture that is that gives us a little bit deeper uh, insight about Paul, about his relationship, about the fact that, that he doesn't just say, I, Paul, am a bondservant, but he says, I, Paul, and Timothy are bondservants, right? He calls them both bondservants. Then he progresses into the next keyword that we looked at which is the word saint, right? And now he's going to identify for us who a saint is. So let's look at that right here. Because we're looking at how you you are going to be able to conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. The first way is by being a bondservant, freely giving yourself Freely receiving the mark in your flesh, understanding and con- and being convinced that the place that you're at is is a good place to be, and you're faring well in that place, and that it is a lifetime commitment. It is forever. I love that. So you, whoops, huh? Uh oh, whoops. <laughs> There's my little clock. I had to get my clock on there. Okay, now let's do the word saint and see what we discover here. Saints is number 40. Hagios. Okay. What did you discover for d- word definition on this? Let's go to the original Greek and look at the word hagios. And what did you see? Oh, I kind of spelt that weird, didn't I? I used the trans the, um The pronunciation one. Let me do the real the transliteration, h a g i o s hagios. Okay, it's say say it again. Sacred. Sacred or holy? Holy. Consecrated. I like that. Set apart. By or for God. Any others? Say it again. Okay, those who are blameless are saints by definition. Is that what it says? It It just means (laughs) It means saint. Isn't that interesting? Saint. Um, One of the definitions I looked at, it just said God's people. Did anybody get that one, too? God's people. Or persons who belong to God. And this is the part I thought was interesting. With a focus upon a special relationship, With God. So it really, the focus was not upon me, the saint, but the focus was upon the fact that I'm a saint because of a special relationship. That I'm identified as a saint not because of my being blameless, but because I am in relationship with God. That's why I'm a saint, because of my relationship. Wow, that's cool. Different from the world and in a the, the likeness. So again, it's an identifying, it shows you an identification with or a belonging to, which is what we ended up saying here, being God's people or belonging to God. Okay, so this is by by word study definition, this is what it is. Now when we went into Philippians, she asked you to identify the word saint from within the immediate text. So that's another, again, now we're going to look at comparing scripture with scripture. So we're going to go back to our immediate text first and see what kind of insights we can gain from Philippians. uh, Basically all of chapter 1, that's verses 1 through 30. Any of the points that you saw in there that help you to better identify what a saint is. Verse once. let so let's do uh Philippians chapter 1. What did you see? I didn't think I just participating in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, that's one of the things the saint does. They part- have participated in the gospel from the first day until now. So that would that would be something that they do, okay? Yeah, there you go. I liked that one. That's it, In verse 1, it says, uh-huh, saints, it, my dyslexia is really all over the place today, saints in Christ, all right, that's in 1-1, okay. Oh, were there any synonyms given in the text besides Saint. Okay, we're going to get there next. He says the saints among who are also the overseers and deacons. So let's put, let's put over here overseers. And we'll do that one, and then we'll get to the deacons next. So let's do this. Saints in Christ who include overseers and deacons. And that was, was that in verse 1 also? It is 1, it's not 2, okay. All right, who include overseers and deacons. That's pretty cool. How big is the group at this point for the identity for a saint becoming? It's really magnifying, right? All right, what else do we see? By definition, what, how else are they identified? Did you guys make your list? They're in Philippi. We know where they are. They're in Philippi, Yes. Okay, there's an opposition to them because it talks in verse 27 about how they strive together. Again, this is another thing that they are doing, that these are those then who are willing to strive together with one mind, one heart. I kind of focused on the fact that then what it did, when I looked at that verse, I went from what they did to their identifying quality, which is that they have one heart and one mind, right? With those with one mind and striving together. Yes, one mind uh, and striving together. It shows a unity, right, a, a oneness in this, in who they are and what they're like. And, and they do so for the sake of the gospel, exactly. There's, did you see in verse 28 what their striving does? What does it reveal?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, very interesting. So what we've now seen is a saint is one who has salvation, correct? They have salvation. They have one mind. Uh, it's going to include those, and they are in Christ. We're learning some pretty good points about what is a saint. They're in Christ. They have one mind, they, and therefore they strive together. It talks about their striving then becomes evidence that what? They have salvation, correct? It's going to be, as a matter of fact, and the, the struggle that's going on between these two groups, those who don't love God and those who do, is that on the, on the side of those who don't, their evidence shows that they don't know God by their striving against the gospel. But we are striving for the gospel, and this is evidence of salvation, right? Evidence that it's present, Okay. I, um, in 29, he says, then you, he says, for those of you who want to enter in and become these saints who are in Christ, right, there's a calling, and that calling is not only to believe, but to do what? To suffer for the gospel. Now, does that in any way link you back to the idea of the bondservant? Is there any suffering that had, took place for you to enter into that that bondservant position? Well, They really only have a ceremony. The ceremony alludes to a painful moment when they are pierced through in the ear, correct? Leaving a mark or a scar. And I thought about, well, this is very interesting. Those who are called into the sainthood are those who are also called into suffering. Wow, it's really linking some of these thoughts together as you just, okay, so they're called to believe on Jesus, obviously, right? Uh, and to suffer for Christ. The, the word for Uh-huh, I love that word, yeah. It,
1: it, it means to do a
0: favor. Okay, yes. So uh, it takes you back to grace, doesn't it? Well, I'm like, thanks a lot. Give me more of those favors, please. <laughs> Did you know that it, it's, it's a benefit, it's a, it's a favor? I'm doing you a favor to let you wash my dishes for me, right? Or to scrub my floors or to, you know. So he basically saying that, that this suffering is supposed to be something that is received in, a, in, uh, in delight, in joy, in gratitude, basically, correct? I thought about the idea that this concept of that you're called to believe, but you're also called for suffering and that they come together. I thought about some of the other the teachings. Somebody flip over to Luke 14. I want to read uh, 25 to 31 because I thought about Luke, uh, the passage in Luke where he takes the idea of w- those who want to enter into relationship with God, it comes at a cost. There is a cost that you need to consider, that you need to understand. That with salvation, you are accepting, or you are, you are um, submitting yourself freely, also to this other thing in your relationship. Who wants to read that? Verse twenty-five to thirty-one in Luke fourteen. Who's got the? Have you got it? Go. Okay, Diane.
2: Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whosoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who observe it begin to ridicule him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish or what king when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with his ten thousand men to encounter the one coming against him with twenty thousand or else while the other is still far away he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple. He does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good.
0: Okay, that's, good. that's far enough. So, okay, so in that passage, what he's saying is, those who want to be my disciples, but I would like to replace that word disciples with the word bondservant. He who wants to be my bondservant must be willing to what? Forsake all. And if he's going to do that, if you are going to believe on me, forsaking all, you also have to understand that there's, a, there's something you need to count. There's a cost that it may come into your life. He's not saying what will or what won't. He's just saying there, it, there could be a cost in this in your life. And what we saw this week in our homework on day five is, is there generally a cost for the believer? The one who believes on Jesus Christ, is there a cost? Is there generally something that God says, Christ says, if you come into faith with me and if you choose to be my bondservant and bear the mark and freely give yourself forever to me, you have to first count the cost, according to Luke. And Luke says, why is that? Because... Who doesn't do that? Who does not understand that there is a price that will have to be paid in this life? If you are going to walk with me and bear my name and be a light in the world, you can absolutely guarantee there's going to be some persecution that's going to come against you. And you need to consider that as you enter into relationship with me. And there's silence in the room. (laughs) So counting the cost, called to believe, absolutely. We all are on board with that. Yay, I'm there. Because all I think on that part of the subject matter is all that I'm receiving. I'm receiving a roof over my head. I'm receiving a warm bed. I'm re- I mean, as a bond servant, I'm thinking about the man who takes on that freely with his master because he's looked at his life and he sees that he's fared well, right, with him. They're all the benefits. And boy are there some good benefits, right? But on the other hand, he says, in this relationship with me, I also want you to come into it with open eyes. Understand this. There's also a, a cost. And he says, that is, you will suffer for Christ's name. Christ then explains it better. He's not saying your suffering is what gets you saved. So do not confuse the the subject matter here. Remember, I've already told you that our subject matter in these exhortations is he's speaking to those who are already justified. They're already in faith, right? He's speaking to the household of faith at this point. He's saying, I'm reminding you that your calling was not just to believe, but to do what? To suffer for me. And they did. And do... And take that forward in our life. You know, I asked a question at the beginning of this that was, um, are you striving for the gospel? Have you accepted suffering or do you run from it? Do you understand that just because you're in Christ does not mean that you are free from uh, just the common ailments of the world, for one thing, are, are you are you leaving planet earth and exiting this human body and you're free from all the the stresses and the difficulties that just being in you know in this world are, are about and the answer is no you don't you aren't getting that but on top of that what we saw this week in our homework was that if you enter into this rel- relationship and you receive the mark and you are his bond servant in this world people are going to see that mark on you, and they are going to do what? They're going to persecute you. Why? That's it. Have you ever had that situation where you enter into a room, and just because they know who you are and they know who you belong to, that you get kind of exerc- uh, what do you call it—exercised out? I mean, they 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 reject you, they treat you poorly, they look down their nose at you, they talk about you, they exclude you. Often. So this is what it, what we're seeing is, and they do that why? Because you bear the name of Jesus. This is not you doing something wrong, and so they reject you. But this is you bearing His name, and so they reject you. Previously in Romans, he wrote that if, if you suffer with Him, you become joint heirs with Jesus. That's right, exactly. And there's and there's trust. And what I would. I would like to even go to the to this place that would say that every true believer is going to have some of this in their life. You can't get around it, and if you truly love the Lord, what is? Would you say it's better to be forewarned, or to get hit upside the head unexpectedly? Totally forewarned. Yeah. There's, there's a reason behind
2: that. Uh, please understand, I am not patting myself on the back. Mm-hmm. wear a cap on my head saying, I belong to Jesus. Mm -hmm. But by your responses to various things in the world,
0: Mm -hmm. it gets out there pretty quick. Yeah, it does.
2: And there are people who will come against you, and you'll get uh, see you later, Christians later, Mm -hmm. big, big, big.
0: Or you call yourself a Christian, and you just did this, or you did that, or you, right. If you fail in any way, they're watching for your failures.
2: Mhm. It's not how you act about it, but you could smile inwardly and you could
0: take it as as a compliment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, be, be, and I do think that, that Christ himself, while he walked this earth, he spoke on this subject on a regular basis. He did forewarn. And he let people know that to, to enter into relationship with him came also with it the, uh, the knowledge that there was going to be persecution coming your way. That he didn't, he didn't hide that truth. He didn't say, go come into faith and I'll tell you about the bad stuff later. It's kind of like those contracts and then there's the fine print at the bottom. There was no fine print on our contract with God. When we enter into relationship with him, he said here in Luke 14, count the cost. Understand there will be a cost. And in the Old Testament, they really even show you and demonstrate to you a lot of these principles about relationship with God through pictures. Through pictures, like like marriage is a picture, or like the temple itself is a picture, right? There's all these beautiful pictures that God showed. This is a picture through the bond servant in the Old Testament. He portrays to us an understanding of what relationship with God is about. I love it. Mm-hmm. Who really <laughs> suffer? Absolutely, yes. they're in jails, they're beaten, they they don't get jobs, I know, and I saw a lot of this myself firsthand, I, absolutely. Okay, n- now, pardon? Even they the yes, absolutely. Okay, so, the testimony concerning Christ, let's see, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, now she gave us verse 1 and 2. I really think you need to expand it all the way down to verse 7 in order to really hit a couple of points in verse 6 and 7 that I think do a better job of, um, if you're looking for the evidence of a person who's conducting themselves in a manner worthy, you're looking for some kind of sign, some kind of pattern or some kind of behaviors that are going on in their life that show them, as being those who are in Christ, correct? So we see in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2, right off the bat, he he says it's the church, saints by calling, correct? So that was pretty straightforward. But it really didn't deepen, I don't think, our understanding of what a saint is without going on a little bit further. So go down into verse, um, I wonder if we should read the whole thing. Let's read the whole thing. Let's go from 1 through 7. Somebody read that, read okay, yes, uh-huh Wha- Okay, I think that, is that the end of two? That's all she gave us. In a, and, the, and, okay, that's all she gave us. And it was like, okay, all we really got were some literal statements about who is a saint and how they're called and that they're holy. And those are important points. But I think that you see the depth of how they're called to a manner which is worthy of the gospel in the next verses. So keep going on down. Yes. Okay. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so 6 it says, the testimony concerning Christ, how, if you want to look for for evidence of conduct conducting themselves worthy of the gospel, what is he saying about them in verse 6? What have they done to prove themselves to be worthy of that calling? It was confirmed in them. It was confirmed in them by them doing what? There you go. By their speaking, by their behavior, by their actions, he says. It was seen in you. And I thought that was really the one of the better points in this particular passage that shows that th- that they are conducting themselves in a manner worthy. How are they conducting themselves in a manner worthy? In in that First Corinthians one one through seven, he says he does it. The, it's confirmed in them because it's seen in them. It's seen in their behavior. It's seen in their actions. It's seen in their words, and that's in verse six. And in verse seven, there's another thing. It's a little. It, it might be a little stretch out there, but what is it that it's keeping them living in that manner that's worthy in verse seven. Uh-huh. Because and they are, but why? There you go. Because they are eagerly awaiting basically the return of Jesus Christ. So, what is the motivation behind all of us having an ability to conduct ourselves worthy in that particular verse? is if you have your eyes set upon Jesus and his coming, so if you understand who who and what it is that you're waiting on, if you have a an e- expectation of his return, and if that is what's calling your heart and drawing your heart, it's what's going to compel you then to walk in a manner worthy right so in let's do this up here let's go first corinthians uh 1 and it was 1 to 7. I expanded it. I'm sorry. I do that a lot. He did call them there the church and he called them saints by calling. I think that was in verse 2. In your translation, uh, Martha, it said holy, right? I think it said holy. I'm not sure. Hagios, the word Hagios, holy, Hagios simply means saint. Okay, now I think that one of the points that Kay is bringing out here is for the purpose of clarifying a problem that you have in some denominations over others. What in some denominations do they exalt only certain people into this position of sainthood? Okay. But by what we've looked at here today, what do we know about who a saint is? It's it's everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly. So it in other words, what does that make you? I'm a saint. I'll call you Saint Brenda from now on, Saint Brenda. Would you mind? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> and when you and when you address me, you may call me Saint Katie. Katie yeah. <laughs> St. Craig, yes, I just love it. It's so cool. All right, now, there was an application question given to you guys on page 19. It was number 2D, if you take a look over there. How does this, all that we've looked at so far, we haven't only just really touched on the first part of, are we at the end of our time? oh my gosh how did that time go so see this is what happened to me this morning getting ready the time was like gone okay well okay well we'll hit this one this one point here how does all of this then relate to that instruction about conducting yourselves worthy of the gospel what how did you guys write out an answer in that I know sometimes these personal application it's number 2d on page 19 it's at the top of the page I think Um, She says, what has the Spirit of God spoken to your heart through your study today? Write out personal application using the pronoun I. But you don't have to get personal. Tell me the real private things in your notes here. But tell me, how do you see this applying in your life? What was the application just by doing these little word studies? And we just did a couple. But what were the insights that you've seen? Or have you discovered something today in our conversation? Yes. Wow. Those are good. Are you gonna be able to handle that, Don? Oh come on, you can do it. You can do it. Well, uh, first off, we belong to Yeah. I love the f and I love the fact how emphatic it is that, you know, for instance, another thing, you know, if you become his bondservant, um, and it and it, there's this mark given to you. Can you undo the mark? Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, you can have a great conversation with him now. This will be really fun because it. Yeah, the bond servant. Wow. That is so cool. That's nice. Well, you should say to him, no, we're going to fix you right. Let me get an owl and take you to the doorpost of the church. <laughs> you could challenge him with that. Say, if you're going to do this biblically, you know, have you read Deuteronomy, uh, you know, what is it? Deuteronomy 15, let's fix you up right. You could, you could do a symbolic thing with the youth group in him. That would be fun. That be a, actually that would be a really cool. It could be a really cool ceremony done to initiate him or something, you know. <laughs> Ouch! Exactly. That's right. Now you're going, stepping back into justification, which is absolutely right. Now in that justification, now where we are called forward in is to that higher calling, which is to make ourselves also be a bond servant unto Him.
2: Yes. We desire different things. Yes. We desire to study the Word. Yeah. We desire to live
0: it out. Yes.
2: We desire to answer questions that come up in our lives.
0: Yes. From here. Yeah. Absolutely. That's right. Now we did not get to go there, but tell me basically what you saw the difference between overseers and deacons were. were. Were there any questions or points that you wanted to bring out about that? Those were your two other words. Basically, an overseer is a leader and a deacon is a servant. Exactly. Very good. And in that, it's one who the, the overseer is one who serves as a leader in the church. And and by the way, I just want to c- cover this. One of the one of the words bishop, overseer, elders, guardians, uh, uh, pres, presbyter, presbyter is that how they, how they say that? Okay. I also want to say it's also the office of pastor. Okay, that would be your leaders, and there is a distinction between the office of pastor and the spiritual gifting of pastor. There is a spiritual gifting of pastor as well. We're not going to go into that, but I just want to make sure that you clearly understand that there can be pastors who are not leaders in the church, but there can be people who have pastoral gifts, the gift of pastor, okay? So just keep that in mind. And protecting. Yes, and protecting... And did you notice that in, in the overseer, too, their strongest emphasis also was the protection of the gospel, yeah. of, the, of the word itself? Yeah. 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 Right. And the deacons, and what about, did anybody notice that deacons can also be women? Yes. All right. We saying, yeah, you were just yeah. saying that, that the deacons, and why is that? Somebody know why? What is, what, the deacons, okay, one is a leader, a deacon is a servant. So why are women allowed to be the deacon? Because it's a position of servant and it's under the, uh, the authority of a leader. Now again, when we go back to looking at the idea of pictures and everything, uh, in Ephesians, it talks about the, the marriage being a picture, right, of a relationship of Christ and his church. The church itself also is a picture. It's a picture of our relationship with God the Father. Within our church, we have leaders who are, there on, who are representative, basically, of Christ. And the body or the congregation and the servants are, are the bride of Christ. The reason we do not want to mess up the picture is because the picture is actually part of the gospel. So, if you, for instance, marriage. If you take two men and marry them or two women and marry them, what have you just done to the gospel that says that the husband and wife are a picture of Christ and his church? Have you messed up the picture? Have you messed up the gospel? I mean, forget the fact that scripture tells you that those things are not right, but the fact that there's a picture and the reason he, God is so strongly preserving them, so strongly preserving, protects them is because they are the gospel they are your marriage is a picture of the the gospel of Jesus Christ who is Christ and who is his bride so if Christ is the husband and the wife is the bride the church is the bride right and in the church itself we have the same thing the leader and we have the servant and in marriage we have the leader and we have the helpmate and so again it's all about pictures not messing with the gospel Right?